welcome to the July episode of the JPO Podcast. This is your host, Carter Clement, and as usual, I'm broadcasting from beautiful uptown New Orleans at the Children's Hospital. This month, we'll be reviewing articles covering malpractice in pediatric orthopedics, the complications of guided growth, and the latest evidence on vitamin D. We'll also bring you two conversations with guest authors, as well as another with a guest expert commentator. So with no further ado, let's get started. I now have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Paul Sponseller from Johns Hopkins University to discuss his recent work, Predicting Late Follow-Up and Understanding Its Consequences in Growth Modulation for Pediatric Lower Limb Deformities. It's a paper by Dr. Cheryl Lawing et al. with Dr. Sponseller as senior author. And with no further ado, I'll hand things over. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Sponseller. Thanks, Carter. I would like to credit Cheryl, who's now a pediatric specialist at Tampa Shriners Hospital, for bringing this project to fruition. We were struck by the fact that growth guidance is a fairly simple procedure, which aims to produce a big effect with minimal surgery, even as an outpatient. But in some cases, it can go awry and can result in not only one surgery, but needing another surgery later on if you miss the proper follow-up to correct and undo the effects of the growth guidance. In most cases in orthopedics, we can expect patients to follow up either as we ask them to or at least later when they're having pain or problems. But in growth guidance, sometimes the growth can overcorrect painlessly and it isn't until late that the problem is noticed. So we've looked retrospectively over a 15-year period at our growth guiding procedures to see what the incidence of late follow-up or loss to follow-up was and how predictive that was of problems with the growth guiding plan. We had 112 patients, most commonly with genuvalgum or ankle valgus, but also genuvarum, ligaments inequality, and knee flexion contractures. So the whole spectrum of conditions. And we found that there was indeed a high proportion of patients who didn't follow up as expected. About a fifth of patients had late follow-up defined as more than six months later than expected or recommended. And another 20% were completely lost to follow-up, and we don't know what complications they may have had. Uh, we found that there were many patients who did have a complication of overcorrection, and that was highly correlated with loss to follow-up or late follow-up, a 19-fold greater risk of overcorrection if the follow-up was late or not on time. The most common problem was needing an osteotomy to salvage this overcorrection. We looked at potential risk factors for late follow-up and loss of follow-up, and we looked at things such as insurance status, income status, obesity, language, distance from our center, and we found that only two of these factors were correlated, those being obesity and English not as a primary language. Thank you very much for that summary. It's particularly interesting to me as someone who's new in practice and especially as someone who put in several tension band plates for guided growth yesterday in a patient with multiple risk factors for late follow-up. I know at the time of this paper you mentioned in the discussion that there is no systematic approach at Johns Hopkins to tracking these patients and making sure they don't fall through the cracks. I'd be very curious to hear if you have any recommendations for the rest of us or if the implications of this paper have led you to make any changes at your institution. So this led us to understand that almost 40% of patients need some help in getting their follow-up. We need to spend more time educating them and potentially building a system that helps to improve the follow-up rates. Some centers have suggested that this can be built into the electronic record to flag patients for follow-up, and we have started to do that. 
And also, you can take that growth guidance population and really spend more time on tracking them and making sure they get their proper follow-up. And especially focus on those patients who aren't primary English speakers or who are overweight or obese. Well, thank you. And lastly, are there any other salient points from this article that you think would be worth covering before we move on? I think the issue of whose responsibility it is is important because we do want to do our best to track them, but I don't think that it's completely under the physician's control. We don't want to imply that it's our liability if follow-up is lost. We want to do the best job we can, but there are many factors that go into follow-up problems. We can try to improve them. We can't make them perfect. I think the finding of obesity as a risk factor was especially intriguing for me and wasn't something I had hypothesized originally but it may be due to the fact that patients who are obese may not see the subtle changes in their limb alignment as early, and they may just not be bodily focused as much as other patients who are normal or slightly overweight status. I agree. I also thought that was a particularly interesting point that obese patients just might not be noticing the overcorrection since it's more likely to be concealed by their habitus. Thank you very much for your time and for the effort that you and your co-authors put into this research. Thank you, Carter. Hello, this is Craig Lauer coming to you from University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I'm going to discuss an article entitled, Obtaining Vitamin D Levels in Children with Fractures Improve Supplementation Compliance. This is from lead author Dr. Barbara Minkowitz and the AHS Bone Health Compliance Group. The purpose of this study was to identify degree of compliance with a physician-recommended vitamin D and calcium supplementation regimen for healthy children who have endured fractures. As for the methods, they retrospectively reviewed healthy fracture patients in a community-based practice. Any patient who was not supplementing prior to injury but started after their injury was included in the study. They were considered compliant if they continued their supplementation until the end of their fracture treatment, which was greater than four weeks, and if they took the supplementation four out of seven days per week. There were 465 patients that were then included in the study, All these patients were offered serum testing of vitamin D levels. The authors looked at the compliance rates and whether it was affected by age, sex, BMI, serum testing results, and also fracture severity. So as for their results, BMI, sex, and vitamin D level on serum testing did not affect the patient's compliance. However, there were 48% of the patients who obtained serum testing when it was offered within three weeks of the fracture. And 61% of those who obtained testing were compliant with treatment, whereas only 22% of those who did not obtain testing were compliant with treatment. Age was positively associated with improved compliance, so each additional year in age improved the rate of compliance by 9%. And then more severe fractures, particularly fractures that required surgery, were more likely to result in patient compliance. So the senior author concludes that compliance with vitamin D supplementation is important and therefore she recommends universal screening and testing for all fracture patients in the chance that the actual testing improves compliance as this association is demonstrated. The main limitation to this study was that the association between serum testing and improved compliance is confounded by the fact that testing was not a selective intervention. It was just offered as a blanket treatment to everyone. So it's not surprising that families that follow through with their testing are then therefore going to be more compliant with the treatment. So while it may be true that universal testing leads to improved compliance, this study really doesn't have the methodology to prove that. The findings with regards to age and fracture severity do appear to be valid. And this helps us identify patients who are more likely to be compliant with the treatment. 
So my takeaway is that if you're one who believes in the power of vitamin D, but you struggle with patient compliance, as many of us do, then this paper demonstrates that compliance is improved with the older patients and those who have recently suffered a more severe fracture resulting in surgery. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders, and I would like to welcome senior author Gaia Georgopoulos, an attending surgeon at Colorado Children's Hospital, to review her article entitled, Clubfoot and Tethered Cord Syndrome, Results of Treatment with the Ponsetti Method. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, in this study, we set out to characterize the clinical outcome of Ponsetti treatment for clubfoot associated with tethered cord syndrome. We hypothesized that clubfoot deformities associated with underlying tethered cord would be more difficult to treat than idiopathic club feet. We retrospectively matched a cohort of idiopathic club feet to subjects with tethered cord who underwent a course of Ponsetti casting and a percutaneous Achilles tenotomy. We judged difficulty of treatment by the total number of casts needed to achieve an acceptable correction, and we found that this number was 54% higher in the tethered cord group. The odds also of the deformity recurring in the tethered cord group was five and a half times that of the idiopathic group. We also discovered that the incidence of deformity recurrence was higher among subjects who had a tethered cord released post-tenotomy as compared to pre-tenotomy. Thank you, Dr. Georgopoulos. What are the implications of this study for practicing providers? So our results support previous literature that documents the resistance of non-idiopathic forms of club feet to conservative management. I think that providers should make sure they examine patients for external signs concerning for tethered cord, such as sacral dimples, abnormal gluteal clefts, or fatty infiltration at the sacrum, and screen those patients for tethered cord appropriately. Interestingly, the majority of our patients had no external signs of spinal cord abnormality. They did, however, have, again, the difficulty in treatment and then some minor neurologic abnormalities, such as weakness of toe extension, weakness of perineal function, and sometimes significant difference in the size of the foot when it was a unilateral deformity. And in those patients, we had recommended imaging of the spinal cord. Early diagnosis of tethered cord may allow for earlier intervention and is helpful. It's helpful to educate the parents regarding the prolonged course of treatment and higher recurrence rates. And if we can make the diagnosis very early and have it treated prior to completing our clubfoot treatment, then recurrence rates may be even lower yet. Very interesting. And finally, what is your current protocol for managing recurrent clubfoot deformity in patients with tethered cord? Uh, my treatment for recurrence is basically the same as any patient with clubfoot. I reinstitute Ponsetti casting. Sometimes it requires a repeat tenotomy, but most of the time we can get by with just the casting and sometimes an anterior tibial tendon transfer, especially if there's weak perineal function. Great. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Georgopoulos. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Last up for this episode, we've got another article from Johns Hopkins by Gailey et al. and senior author Michael Ain entitled Medical Malpractice in Pediatric Orthopedics, a Systematic Review of U.S. Case Law. The authors decided to study malpractice cases and payouts because anecdotally, pediatric orthopedists are at high risk for litigation, but there is scant evidence on the subject. Overall, the article suggests about half of lawsuits in this field are found in favor of the plaintiff, and payouts tend to be high. In this study, the author searched a large legal database and found 84 relevant cases. As expected, the most common defendants in musculoskeletal cases were orthopedic surgeons and pediatricians. Specifically, 
Pediatricians tended to get sued most often for missing DDH, followed by skiffies. Orthopedists tended to get sued most commonly for mismanagement of fractures, followed by quote-unquote deformities. The plaintiffs won 51% of cases, which is higher than previous literature has suggested. The average payment for an orthopedist was $625,000, and the average total payment, including multiple defendants, which was often the case, was close to $1 million. Importantly, the authors found that most cases were upheld on appeal, whether they were initially found in favor of the plaintiff or defendant. So, they suggested that physicians who win cases should feel reassured, while those who lose should think twice before appealing. So now, segueing from that article on malpractice, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Andy King to discuss a more personal perspective on malpractice and medical litigation. Dr. King is a scoliosis surgeon at the Children's Hospital of New Orleans. He has been a spine surgeon in town for nearly four decades. He is a professor at LSU, holding the Dean McEwen Endowed Chair and a former chair of the department. And fortunately, he has very limited personal experience with malpractice, but he has agreed to join the podcast and discuss his experience and takeaways. So Dr. King, thank you for joining us. And if you wouldn't mind briefly talking about your personal experience with litigation. My personal experience was that I had a fairly serious malpractice claim against me first year of my practice, first year on the faculty at LSU. I had a patient who had had a neck fracture uh, six weeks previously, and I had done a posterior reduction, which I felt was done competently and adequately, but the patient woke up with a Brandt-Card syndrome. A lawsuit came about, and perhaps I can use a little bit of my experience with that lawsuit to try and generalize. First of all, when the lawsuit comes, it's written in very inflammatory and derogatory words, which you can take badly. They have to make it look as bad as possible when they put the complaint out. So just read through that and don't get too upset with that. Secondly, it usually comes when you're a young surgeon. They're less likely to want to sue older surgeons. Older surgeons probably make slightly less mistakes. But also, they're a little more wily, a little harder to to get a positive verdict from the jury. Young surgeons are a little more vulnerable, and you're very, very busy. One thing I will say is this. You often think you're too busy to deal with such nonsense, but find time. Put away as much time as possible. Make sure you have very good representation. Often young surgeons are given by their employer if they're employed or by the university if they're with the university, given a very young and inexperienced lawyer. But you should ask to have a very experienced lawyer. Having done that, make time to sit down with this lawyer. Remember that he is the expert in this arena, not you. And he will ask you questions and you need to answer them just very, very fairly, so he knows exactly what it is, even if it means you are admitting to the fact that you might have done something a little differently. That's very interesting, especially the part about the the time commitment. It's something I've heard before, and it sounds like it just adds insult to injury that this lawsuit is already weighing on your mind, and then on top of that, it's going to carve a big chunk out of your clinical practice as you prepare for it. Do you recall how much time you you might have ended up spending on that lawsuit? It's a considerable amount of time, and you absolutely have to find that time. You have to make that time out of your busy schedule, and it's very important to do so. 
Uh, Dr. King, we hear a lot these days about quote-unquote second victim syndrome and the stress and anxiety for the physician going through a lawsuit that was probably underappreciated in the past. And I think it's a great thing that we as a medical community are starting to appreciate that and recognize it. I can only imagine in the very early part of your practice going through a lawsuit, that's obviously everyone's sort of unspoken fear coming out of training. But is there anything you could tell us about that so-called second victim syndrome? It's extremely important and extremely common. You've got to remember that for the lawyers who are malpractice lawyers, this is an everyday at the office for them. However, it's important when they make the claim of malpractice that they often use words which you can take as being derogatory to your feeling of self-worth as a surgeon. I think often we will judge our own personal self-worth by our ability to be a good and caring surgeon. And when you get a lawsuit challenging that, it can be very, very unsettling and it can make you mad. It usually does make you mad, but it can also cause depression. I've seen quite severe depression caused in surgeons after getting a lawsuit for a malpractice case. And as someone who has held many, many leadership roles at this point in your career and been a mentor to many people, including myself, how do you feel we as a, whether it's a community, a specialty society, a department should try to address this when we see? Well, I think you bring up a very good point. And I think there is a commitment on the part of mentors, chairs, fellowship directors to actually become involved in helping these people through this difficult period of time. Certainly, anyone that is sued should feel perfectly entitled to get in touch with their former chair, get in touch with former mentors, even get in touch with some leaders in the field and get their opinion. They may or may not decide to, in actual fact, be an expert witness and come to court. But even if they don't, their advice can be extremely important. And we were talking a little bit earlier about some of the logistical parts of the process. And I was very interested to hear, I think our listeners may also be interested to hear about the review boards and how the process works once a claim is made. Yeah, in many states, there is a medical review panel which looks at these cases. You have to remember that lawyers file many suits and less than 20% ever come to court or to a judgment. So that many of them just don't proceed because even the malpractice attorney feels after he's done some research, there's not a lot of merit to it. In this state, all malpractice cases to go forward have to go through a medical review panel. This is where three doctors got together and agreed upon by both the plaintiff and the accused to review the case and make an opinion. I've been on many, many review panels. I think they're helpful in a number of ways. One way is that after we have reviewed it and made our reasons why we may not think malpractice has occurred, then often I've found the plaintiff's attorney feels he can then go to his client and say, listen, this has been adequately looked at by some experts in the field. Here are the reasons why we really don't think there is malpractice. And often the plaintiff then feels vindicated, he'll drop his suit. And I think a large number of suits are dropped in this way. 
However, it's very, very important that the medical review panel is not just seen as doctors rubber stamping, always standing up for other doctors. If you're going to be on a medical review panel, and if there is quite obvious malpractice or something done wrong, then I think it's very important for the continuing validity of these panels to say it. After all, a lawsuit may go ahead, but more likely it will be settled. We pay malpractice insurance. We do make mistakes. Take your licks and go on. Great advice. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you. That's it for this month's episode. Thanks for joining us. And if you've been enjoying the material, please remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to the podcast. 